Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power frequency. Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. According to the nonprofit Migration Policy Institute, Wisconsin is home to about 70,000 undocumented immigrants, mostly from Latin America. As my guest today writes, quote, these are the people who hang drywall, clean hotel rooms, wash dishes in restaurant kitchens, and package the nation's cheese. Despite the essential nature of their work, none of them is allowed to get a driver's license in Wisconsin. This is particularly problematic for the thousands of undocumented workers who keep the milk flowing on the state's dairy farms, most of whom work in isolated rural areas. For their ProPublica series, America's Dairy Land, Risking Workers' Lives for the Milk We Drink, reporters Melissa Sanchez and Mariam Jamil have interviewed more than 100 undocumented current and former dairy workers. Their newest article, Wisconsin's Dairy Industry Relies on Undocumented Immigrants, but the state won't let them legally drive, shines a light on the highly disproportionate number of convictions for driving without a valid license that are issued to Hispanic drivers. Joining me today to talk about this article is its co-author, Melissa Sanchez, a reporter at ProPublica focused on immigrants and low-wage workers. Her work on Chicago's punitive ticketing and debt collection system helped end driver's license suspensions over ticket debt. Welcome back to A Public Affair, Melissa. We're really glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. I'm talking again with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her investigation of the lives of undocumented immigrants on Wisconsin dairy farms. If you have a question for Melissa or would like to share a perspective or an experience related to immigrant workers on Wisconsin dairies, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at WRTTalk or message a public affair on Facebook. So, Melissa, there's so much to talk about. You've been doing this ongoing series uh, and really immersing yourself in the world of the lives of immigrants on Wisconsin dairies. Let's start with a little of the lay of the land, so to speak, and just have you give us an overview of labor and with the Wisconsin dairy industry today and who's doing most of the work and how do conditions vary on dairy farms from what you've seen? Yeah, that, that's a it's a big question. Um, so a lot isn't known. There aren't official counts of how many people are working um, and what farms. Nobody tracks that. And people who are here illegally, undocumented workers, like they're not going around like, you know, checking off the undocumented box on, on labor records or census records. But that all said, there's uh, some recent estimates from UW put it in around 6,200 undocumented workers from Latin America on Wisconsin dairy farms. I think the number is probably higher because that is only looking at farms with at least 500 cows. And I've met a couple dozen workers who work on farms with fewer than that many cows. So even, even the, the small farms in Wisconsin often are hiring, even if it's just one or two people to, to help out. Um, what we've seen is that the workforce has shifted in Wisconsin. It used to be a lot more Mexican workers, often from the state of Veracruz in Southern Mexico. And over the past maybe five years or so, the workforce has really become more Central American. I have met a lot of Nicaraguans from the northern part of Nicaragua who are coming up. And it's like, once you have one person, then it's their brother, then it's their cousin, then it's their kids. And then pretty soon it's like the whole village. It's, it's how chain migration works. So you have a lot of Nicaraguans right now on farms. You still have a lot of folks from Veracruz and Mexico and other parts from Oaxaca. I think it, it kind of depends, like different farms and different communities in Wisconsin will end up receiving a lot of people from the same place. Um, and, and depending on the size of the farm, like these, these and, and the ownership, the conditions will vary, but workers are paid between $10.50 and $17 per hour, depending on their years of experience, the work, the farm, et cetera. Um, workers often work 60 to 70 hour weeks, and it's worth noting that in agriculture, there is no overtime pay for hours worked above 40 hours. 
So that means that there's no, people aren't getting paid time and a half. Um, and that's standard, that's like the federal law. Um, and then, and, and people are often hired into milking and farms as they've gotten bigger, they've added shifts. So there's overnight shifts. And those are typically the ones that newcomers will arrive to because nobody wants to work these four or five hour shifts that start sometimes at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And, and the work day itself is really difficult because workers often work in two, two or three shifts in a day, and it might be four or five hours here, and then a four hour break, and then four or five hours, and then another break. And you don't get to just sleep for eight hours straight. It's really rare to find workers who have, who get to sleep at night, a regular amount of sleep that an adult might, might need, especially somebody who works really backbreaking work um, so milking is, is the main job that people come to. A lot of folks also come, um, a, lot, a lot of people work to corral the cows into the milking parlor and to clean the manure. Um, and that often involves driving a skid steer, which is a small kind of tractor that kind of scrapes up the manure. And then you take it into a, a manure pit to, to dump it off. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's what the conditions look like. And it's, you know, when you're working with heavy animals like that, and heavy machinery, there's there's an inherent danger in doing the work. So we have talked to a lot of workers, and when you ask them if they've ever been injured on the job, most of them will say no. But then if you ask them, have you ever been kicked? Have you ever been stepped on? Have you ever been you know, hurt in these other ways? And almost everybody has been hurt, and they will show you the scars in their body to, to prove it. Thanks. That was a really uh, thorough overview. Um, to give us a sense of what's happening and, and who we're talking about here in your reporting. Your recent article focuses specifically on how the lack of a driver's license impacts immigrant dairy workers. Tell us about one or two or, or more, if you like, of the dairy workers you've met uh, that you interviewed for this article who've been cited for driving without a license. What kinds of stories did they tell you? about their experiences as drivers in Wisconsin and what that has led to? Sure. The one that immediately comes to mind is the first one who I really got to know, a man named Jose, who we'd written about because his son had been killed in, a, in an accident outside of Madison a few years ago. And in the months after his son died, he had this really tragic, awful experience, which, which we wrote about earlier this year. But he had to routinely interact with police because he kept getting pulled over. He he went to go work on a farm, I think near Arlington, and would drive in every you know for his shifts. He he got an apartment near near the farm, but in a town maybe ten minutes away that the employer provided for for him and other workers. And he got pulled over I think six or seven times in the six months after his son died. And he'd get pulled over and I watched the dash cam video or the body cam video and I pulled all the police reports and the court records. And he would he would just tell he would tell the officer, I can't and the officer would say, You need to stop driving, you don't have a license. And Jose would say, I can't, I don't know how to get a license. I'm undocumented. How can I get a license? And the police officers couldn't help him. Um, and you know, the first ticket you get is typically $124 or $200, depending on what agency gives it to you. But then the cost goes up and up and up. And after you've gotten two or three tickets, it's it's uh, about $480 for the ticket, including court costs. And the court costs include a mandatory $200 DNA test. You have to pay every single time. And every single time he'd, he'd have to go to court because there's mandatory court appearances. It's like a day off of work. You had to pay somebody to drive him to court $100 for the ride because he didn't want to get caught. Yet again, driving without a license, and I and I learned through his experience, and then through through all of these others, just how how frustrating and, and infuriating it is for these workers who who know they're heading to work on farms, which they understand that the state of Wisconsin celebrates so much as part of its its cultural heritage, but but yet the state makes it impossible for them to really live live normal lives and and it kind of forces them into this isolation often on the farms where they live yeah so it sounds like in jose's case um at least we're talking about really weeks of lost wages when you compound the days of missed work with the cost of the tickets and the dna tests and the paying for people to drive him uh, was that typical from what you've heard from folks 
It really ran the gamut. I mean, I don't think I've met one worker in Wisconsin who has driven and who has not gotten ticketed. I think everybody has had experiences with tickets. So I'd walk into break rooms and ask, has anybody here been ticketed? And everybody would tell me yes. But the amount of times they've gotten ticketed would depend on how often they were driving around and also the, the community where they live. There's some there's some communities where police officers and sheriff's deputies, they understand what's going on. I've heard this, that there's sort of this like wink, wink, nod, nod kind of agreement sometimes where if you know that that this guy Juan works on this farm that belongs to your friend Bill, like you might just say like, all right, you know, just 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 drive slow. And I've heard workers tell me that once they told the officer who they work for, they were let off the hook. But in some communities, people are getting ticketed really frequently. I, I got data from municipal courts all over the state because the you know, cases can can wind up in either municipal court or circuit court for various reasons. And I spent some time looking at Sparta. And in Sparta, I found um, at least three, three people who'd been pulled over three times each in one year for not having a license. And, I, and I've heard that there's there's communities where officers know who doesn't have a license and will just pull them over and over and over again. So it's so a lot a lot of people have spent a lot of money on this. One guy told me he felt like a walking ATM for the the local the local police department. Um, and in addition to all those costs that I mentioned, once it's your your third or subsequent offense within three years, it's a criminal issue and you can get arrested in some communities, there's this chance of getting deported. People also hire attorneys to try to keep them out of jail. So it's it's thousands of dollars more to pay for for a lawyer. I'm talking with reporter Melissa Sanchez on a public affair today about her investigation of the lives of undocumented immigrants on Wisconsin dairy farms. You're listening to a public affair on WRT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes. And Melissa and I would love to hear from you if you have a question or would like to share a perspective or experience related to immigrant workers on Wisconsin dairies. Please do give us a call at 608-256-2001 extension 9. And we're talking specifically about Melissa's story, which she co-wrote with her colleague Mariam Jamil. Wisconsin dairies indus- Wisconsin's dairy industry relies on undocumented immigrants, but the state won't let them legally drive. So we're going to continue diving into this issue of the difficulties dairy workers face living their lives without driver's licenses. And you just mentioned uh, this uh, dairy worker who you talked to, Melissa, who said he feels like an ATM for police. Uh, Are dairy workers being specifically targeted as a source of revenue for law enforcement or municipal governments? And we'll get into the subject of racial profiling as well. What's your sense of that? I, I don't know if it's so intentional as as that it's a way to raise money for municipalities. I think it might happen as a consequence. I do suspect that there's individual officers across the state who are who know who they're looking for and are pulling over certain kinds of cars. And I um and you, you see this sometimes with some of the, the police reports. A police report might say, I saw a Hispanic man get out of a car, so then I pulled him over and it turned out he didn't have a license. Um, but to be honest, I think, I don't know if that's systematic. I think what is happening systematically is that police and sheriff's deputies across the state are doing random license plate checks. And so what this means is an officer will be kind of pulled over on the side of the road and we'll just run the plates of passing vehicles. I don't know what vehicles they are choosing to run the plates of, but I've spent some time uh, looking through court records, and in, in, in you know in some places, I I will see that people are pulled over randomly who are black and white and Latino and of all colors, but the people who are Latino, the tickets that they wind up getting are for not having a license, and and like how does this work? So the the state of Wisconsin, very hypocritically or you know this is a huge contradiction but it allows undocumented people to buy a car and register their vehicle and they can get those plates that say america's dairyland on them legally but but they can't drive they can't they they can't get driver's licenses and so when a cop pull runs the plates of of a passing vehicle they can see that the registered vehicle owner does not have a driver's license. And that gives them the pretext or the, the justification to make a stop and pull that person over. 
And so I am not saying that this is what happens 100% of the time. There's also undocumented immigrants who are speeding and they get pulled over for speeding and they, they also get hit with one of these tickets. There's people who, you know, commit driving infractions. But I'd say a third to half of the of the of the um, tickets that we reviewed kind of stemmed from these random license plate checks. And I, I don't know if that's racial profiling or if it's just a cop like, you know, happened to pass, happened to check check on this person's plates. But the fact that this entire category of people can't access driver's licenses means that they're automatically gonna gonna be hit with this ticket. And in <clears throat> fact, ProPublica in your investigation found that a hugely disproportionate number of convictions for driving without a license are issued to Latinos in Wisconsin. Um, some of those numbers were really quite startling. Tell us a little bit more about what you found when you dug into the numbers of convictions by race or ethnicity in various um, cities and, and counties and municipalities. Yeah, so we we first really, there's two two different places where these kinds of tickets can wind up. One is the municipal, municipal courts, and not every municipality has a court. Madison has a court, um, but other places don't don't have them. And then there's a circuit court system, which, which handles both like the basic traffic tickets and then also criminal cases. And depending on where where the ticket is issued and what agency issues the tickets, and, it's, and if it's your first or, or second offense, it can go to either of these courts. But the, the statewide system, we started there, the circuit court system, and, and about, I'd say about half of all of the convictions for driving without a license wind up getting processed through the system. The other half are in this, this scattered group of 230 municipal courts. So a little, a little bit wonky, and I apologize. We spent a lot of time with these numbers, but we, we ended up paying a company out of Madison to help us um, get some of the data because there's no like easy database to, to see what's happening. And with their help, we were able to find that in the circuit court system, um, I think 49% of the 16,000 convictions for driving without a valid license last year, so that's close to 8,000 of them, went to drivers who were marked as Hispanic all over the state. And, and uh, we suspect that that number is an underestimate because people who are Hispanic are routinely marked as white. And it's just, you know, the, what what is race? What is Hispanic? Um, but but a lot of the people who I've interviewed um, are are labeled as white in the court records or in the police records, even though they're immigrants from Honduras or Nicaragua or Mexico. So, but let's take it. It's it's fifty percent statewide, but then county by county, it, it can look very different. So we spent a lot of time in Clark County because that's where there's more dairy farms than anywhere else in the state. And I think the numbers there were were closer to around seventy percent. And then we we also pulled records from individual municipal courts across the state, including Madison, Milwaukee, and then a lot of the, the places like Sparta, like I mentioned, or Abbotsford, which is in Clark and Marathon counties. And the numbers there range from, I think, around 36% went to Hispanics in Madison to higher than 70% in places like Sparta and Abbotsford. And so it, it just really ranged across the state how many of those tickets went to people who were marked Hispanic. But yet, uh, I don't think I have, remember the specific number, but it's under 15%, the total state population of Latinos or Hispanics, I think, right? I think it's under 8%. Under 8%, under, okay. Under 8%, yeah. which is so mm. stunning that yeah. you have 50% of the tickets for this violation going to Hispanic people, yeah. and Hispanic people make up fewer than 8 out of every 100. It's, it's a lot. Yeah. So... How are local and county law enforcement officials and judges reacting to this situation? Obviously, they're they're noticing this, right? Uh, this trend. Yeah. It's 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 not a secret to them. So we talked to several judges and prosecutors and police chiefs and sheriffs and other folks, interpreters, court clerks, everybody we could we could find, and everybody knows what's going on. There, it's no secret who's getting these tickets, and it's no secret why. And I was really surprised to learn that judges and prosecutors were really overwhelmed with the volume of cases and don't, and, and because of resources issues, they just don't think that it's worth their time to really be prosecuting folks for driving without a license. Several prosecutors, both Republicans and Democrats, described this to me as like a victimless crime and, and they, just, they just can't afford to put, to put a lot of time into it. In Clark County, the, the prosecutor there, who's a Democrat, she she told me that her her assistant um, attorney what is it called her assistant state attorney uh, recently left or maybe last fall had to left for a different job and she's been all by herself since then and one of the things that she's had to do was 
stop stop taking some of these cases. So she stops prosecuting these criminally. People still have to pay a fine, but they're no longer criminal issues. And the same thing is happening in Waukesha, Milwaukee. And then judges told us the same thing, that their dockets are really full. And every time you have one of these cases, I mean, you don't know for certain whether somebody's undocumented, but they need an interpreter. There's like, there's clearly like cultural and language issues. The cases take longer to process. There are more resources the court has to put into processing the case criminally. So they were, uh, across the board, people were really um, supportive of changing the law and allowing people to, to get driver's licenses. And then law enforcement was really interesting too. They they feel the same way, but for a different reason. They think that roads are less safe because undocumented people haven't been tested and trained on basic driving rules. And in the in the police records, you can see often people are getting pulled over. Sometimes for there, there was one 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 county where I found a lot of people were getting pulled over for um, driving through a construction zone. That it was a like, no like don't don't drive through this zone or whatever the sign says. And when they would get pulled over. The, the driver would tell the cop that they didn't understand what that sign meant. And so they, they, they didn't know what road signs meant. So they got the ticket for driving through a construction zone plus for not having a license. And, and some sheriffs have also told me that if when people don't have a driver's license, it makes it really difficult to know who is who. And when you're trying to identify people on the scene of an accident or trying to trying to find somebody, trying to serve a warrant, not having like a like a like a legitimate piece of identification that you can use just to just to make sure you know who you're talking to is is really harmful for them. So that's one of the reasons that folks in law enforcement said that they supported changing the law. And how about the farmers that you talk to who are employing uh, immigrant workers who are not able to drive to go to the barber or go to the grocery or at least drive legally? What's the farmer's perspective that you've talked to? So we talked to about a dozen farmers and farmers don't say openly that they hire people who they know are undocumented. They all say that they simply accept the papers they are given, but at the same time or like under the same breath, they will say that they are aware that their workers cannot get driver's licenses and they want the law to change. So farmers repeatedly told us that they'd gotten calls in the middle of the night from workers who were pulled over and made to wait on the side of the road for somebody else with a driver's license to come pick up their car or had to bail them out of jail. They they are they are they feel obligated to provide housing to their workers really close to the farm or on the farm to keep them from having to drive, which is an extra cost. Um, there's a farmer I know who ended up his workers got pulled over so many times in this short time period that he wound up buying a trailer and putting it on the property and he hadn't done that before but he did that just just for those nights when when police were particularly active and so it's you know i guess it's bad for business but a, a lot of the farmers see this as a basic human rights issue and that they just know that their workers are really isolated um i've talked to workers who haven't had a girlfriend in years there, I, I know that might sound basic, but it's also like, it's just it's just being human is like being able to be in community with people and like find love and people are are isolated. And, and, and you know, it's complicated because they do it by choice. They come here to work for, for whatever their personal reasons are, but they also wind up coming and living in, in this extreme isolation that they did not expect. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her investigation of the lives of undocumented immigrants on Wisconsin dairy farms. If you have a question for Melissa that's coming out of our conversation today or would like to share a perspective or experience related to dairy farming labor issues on Wisconsin dairies, Please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. So I think we'll get into a little bit of the politics now, Melissa, because I know you and your colleague, Mariam, have been writing about that recently as well with uh, an article that just came out last week, why some Wisconsin lawmakers and local officials have changed their minds about letting undocumented immigrants drive. Let's start, first of all, with uh, the history of the state law that bans undocumented people from getting a license and the state policy, which you mentioned already, that allows undocumented people to own a vehicle but not drive it. How did we get here in terms of the legality of this situation? 
So until 2006, undocumented people in Wisconsin could get driver's licenses. A lot of your listeners might remember when this was the case. And it changed um, after as a result of a federal law called the Real ID Act, which was the sort of post 9-11 like anti-terrorism measure that intended to um, make it difficult for foreigners to come here and get a driver's license and then use that license to board a plane and commit an act of terror. And so starting after after 2000, I think that law was passed in 2005 and it kind of went into effect gradually at the federal level. But Wisconsin um, in 2006 changed its own laws to start requiring basically proof of citizenship or other legal status for folks to get driver's licenses. And when that happened, you know, before before that went into effect, you had a rush of undocumented people going to renew their licenses or get licenses. But once those licenses expired and people were in the situation they're in today, you have tens of thousands of people living in the state who are likely driving around without a license. And, um, and since then, um, 19 states have passed laws to allow undocumented people in those states to, to drive and it's getting some sort of driving permit or a temporary driver's license like we have in Illinois where I live, but Wisconsin is not one of those states. I know Voces de la Frontera has been working on this issue. It's been a focal point often of their um, May 1st marches. Um, so there's advocacy going on to try to get this situation changed in Wisconsin. And it sounds like from what you and your colleague Mariam wrote last week that um, some Republicans who, as we all know, are control of the Wisconsin legislature are, are rethinking this a little bit. You talked to, for this recent article, many uh, Republicans and politicians around the state. What did you hear, and why are some Republicans perhaps changing their minds? So it was interesting. I, I, I really wanted to find Republicans who could tell me why they thought this law was a good idea and who could tell me why they thought the state should continue banning undocumented people from driving. And I couldn't get a single one to talk to me. So it's worth noting that. It could be because of where I work or... It's not an issue that that they're allowed to talk about openly. I don't know what's going on, but I, I I heard that there was a meeting in Abbotsford, in which sits kind of in between Clark and Marathon counties, um, back in in the spring, where local immigrant rights advocates had worked with dairy farmers and local officials to bring Republican lawmakers to to them in a private session to talk about the issue and why why not allowing undocumented immigrants to drive was harmful to their communities. They didn't invite any any undocumented immigrants to speak. It wasn't an event. It wasn't a, an, an event where you, they wanted to have like sympathetic, like poor immigrants look at how they're suffering. It was more, let's look at this as a business angle. Let's look at this from the safety angle. And you had dairy farmers and sheriffs and police officers telling Republican lawmakers that the law wasn't working for them and that they, and then, one of the messages I heard from organizers and the people at the event was that they wanted to tell them that even though we know that immigration and illegal immigration is a really hot button, delicate issue, we will still vote for you if you support this kind of measure. And so th this happened. And I, I spoke with the mayor of Abbotsford, who's an older white gentleman who described himself as a, as a, as a Trump Republican who wants, you know, he wants strong immigration policy, a strong border policy. But he talked about how the illegals in his community should be able to drive because it doesn't make sense for business. It doesn't make sense. They're, they're just trying to get to work. And, and I thought it was fascinating to hear that from somebody who described themselves like an extreme right wing person who thought the law just didn't make sense for his community. And, and, and the local municipal court judge there, too, she, she described how when she became a judge about a decade ago, she was really shocked about how many Hispanic people in her community just couldn't get licenses and it didn't occur to her that it was it was a state law that banned folks from from driving. So we spent some time there and I reached out to all of the lawmakers who had attended this meeting and one of them didn't didn't get back to me and and it's it's in his perspective from what I can tell from press releases is that he sees the the driver's license issue as like a benefit for illegal immigrants and part of some liberal wish list. So I think he kind of sits on that side of this is not something I'm going to touch. The other ones, one one has spoken publicly about how he might be open to considering this kind of legislation. And the other two, one was Pat Snyder. Um, he, he spoke really openly about how the dairy industry would collapse without undocumented labor and that, that we need to find a solution. 
The other one, um, Donna Rosar, she was also supportive, mostly because she's heard from law enforcement that this would be a this would be good for public safety, for safety on the roads. But she brought up a really important point, which is that for for some of her colleagues, it feels like the federal government has failed to do its job. Congress has failed to do its job. And, and as a result, states like Wisconsin are left with this issue. They feel invaded by, by all the illegal immigrants. And, and they then and it's suddenly become up to them to, to, to make this fix that the federal government won't do. So I think for a lot of Republicans, it's it's just it's going to be hard to support something that might be viewed by their constituents as being soft at immigration when when at the end of the day it's it's the it's Congress's job to do something about it. And they they haven't they haven't done anything in decades. So in the meantime, uh, local municipalities, counties are left to sort of figure out what to do. And you talked about that a little bit earlier, that some are just choosing not to enforce. But there are also, you mentioned in your article, some other solutions that Wisconsin communities are developing for dealing with the problems associated with not allowing dairy workers to drive. Tell us a little bit more about those. And some of them are, are here close by in southwest Wisconsin. Yeah, in Southwest Wisconsin, a few years ago, a group called the Multicultural Outreach Center, which is comprised of mostly retired volunteers and other folks in the community, they they saw this was an issue with a lot of the the people they were trying to help, and so they they met with local law enforcement officials, they met with dairy farmers, and they agreed to create these these identification cards for dairy workers, and so they would go to a farm, and and get everybody's information, and they they would only like the ID card would include the person's name and who their employer was or some local community connection. And the idea wasn't to help people avoid getting ticketed for driving without a license, but they thought that if, if, a, if a police officer pulled somebody over and they didn't have a license, but they had this card, that, that would show the officer that this person is like doing work that's valuable to our community and maybe let's treat them like kindly. And it's, it might sound a little bit naive or like idealistic, but I'm told by the organizers that it was effective and it helped reduce the number of people who were, in her words, hauled off to jail for driving without a license. Um, and it kind of helped build some ties between between the people that were getting pulled over and the people doing the pulling over. Any other particular, you know, workarounds that you've heard about with with local communities? You know, there's one that the organizers, the officials involved begged me not to name publicly because they're afraid that the conservatives on their county board will shut it down. But in one place, I know that the local district attorney and public defenders and other and judges agreed that when a case becomes a criminal matter, like for a repeat offense, instead of charging it as a criminal matter, they, they have a kind of diversion program that allows that person to get out of the, the criminal part of it as long as they take a, a driver's education test, which I thought was fascinating. And also it just doesn't make any sense. Like local officials should not be doing driver's education. That's, that's, that's a, it's a state issue. And people don't get contained in, they're not contained in one county. People go to other counties. So it's, 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 really, it's really crazy. It doesn't make any sense what's happening. And I, I mean, and, and the biggest, and, you know, there's other solutions like, individuals in, in, in Latino communities who do have licenses become the so-called raiteros or the ride givers for people who don't have licenses. So that costs money. Um, you know, so when Jose needed to go to court, he had to pay the daughter of a coworker $100 to drive him to court and wait for him and then, and then drive him back home. And it's a lot of money for Jose, but it also makes sense for this woman who just spent three or four hours of her day becoming somebody's chauffeur. People pay that amount of money to go to the grocery store, to go to immigration court, to go to go all over the place. And then also informally, there's there's like a system that I learned about where people will pay somebody with a driver's license to reg register their cars under their names. Because once your car is registered under the name of somebody who does have a driver's license, then cops stop pulling you over. Because when a cop does a random plate check, it will turn out that this, this Toyota Corolla is owned by somebody with a license and no problems. So it's it's like a really interesting black market workaround that people are doing at the local level. Very inventive, but as you said, you know, requires a lot of time and resources. Uh, all of these various <laughs> solutions, right? Everything costs money. Yeah. 
You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her investigation of the lives of undocumented immigrants on Wisconsin dairy farms. There's still time to give us a call if you have a question for Melissa about reporting on Wisconsin dairies or would like to share a perspective or experience related to working on Wisconsin dairy farms. Please do give us a call at 608 608- Two five six two zero zero one extension nine. So I'd like to to continue in the direction, Melissa, that we've just been going and kind of talk a little bit about um, the big picture, how this issue fits into the big picture of uh, U.S. immigration policy, but also as a reporter being immersed in this kind of work, what it's like and what what you've been learning about it. But I'm going to start first of all with something that one of your sources described in your most recent article, if I close my eyes, how how you immigrants are treated here in Wisconsin is that if I close my eyes, I'll make them go away approach to treating the undocumented. And this struck me as a really appropriate metaphor for describing the U.S. approach to immigration as a whole in many ways. Um, are you still surprised sometimes by the dysfunction of the U.S. approach to immigration? Um, do you Are you running into things in this work uh, that you didn't expect. Um, you've spent, you know, uh, in many ways your whole life uh, dealing with uh, immigration issues, either in a personal or working capacity. Tell us what this issue in, in Wisconsin in particular has uh, introduced to you in terms of thinking about immigration policy in this country. Hey, I appreciate that question. It's, it, yeah, it, it is. This is something I've I've dealt with personally or professionally my my entire life. I'm the daughter of immigrants. One came here illegally when he was a teenager. The other did come here legally. And a lot of my family, um, most of my family is immigrants. My husband's the son of immigrants too. Um, Wisconsin was has been surprising in that there is this this double speak. There's these two realities, and one side. That, that quote, it, it was something that a former UW law professor gave to um, the local paper in Madison years ago, this whole closing your eyes and you know, like pretending you don't see the thing in front of you. And it's, 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 the, it's the conversation that I have with farmers who can tell me, I will accept the papers that are handed to me. I don't know the immigration status of my workers, but they can't drive because they're here illegally. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't understand and and you know i see all the coverage that i've been trying to read through clips of different coverage of, of the dairy industry over the past few years and local outlets and people refer to you know reporters refer refer, refer to the workers as the hispanic workers or the mexican workers and it's, it's sort of like this way of saying it but not saying it like people don't want to acknowledge what's happening but when i go to a farm or when i go talk to a dairy worker everybody tells me they're undocumented and it's easy it's easy for folks to tell me because i speak spanish i look like them i'm like not ice i'm not i'm not out to get them but there's like a clear situation that's happening but people go to great lengths to not talk about it and it's i i have felt I have used this word a lot with my colleague. I felt I felt very gaslit and crazy over the past year. Like, are we actually are we are we doing the right thing? Like, is there a story here? Not just about the dairy, about the driver's license issue, but about conditions for workers. Because a lot of the public narrative that's been made is like there are good dairy farmers out here to like protect their workers and everybody's happy to be working together. And yes, it's like a yes and yes, workers want to work and they want to make money and they want to survive and they want their children to not die back home of malnutrition. Yes. But at the same time, these people, these like human beings that we have working on these farms are sometimes treated worse than the animals that they're there to, to milk. There, you know, I've met people who have lived inside of barns and people who work 18 hour days like as a routine thing. And, and, and remember they, they, they don't make overtime. OSHA does very little to inspect injuries and deaths on small farms. Um, OSHA could do more, and it doesn't. The the state like nobody nobody actually tracks what's happening. No, nobody is tracking how many people live in employer provided housing. That was stunning to me. It's it's absolutely stunning. You have people living in in homes with black mold and holes in the ceiling and like makeshift like little rooms. You have people living in, in great apartments too. There's farmers who do provide decent apartments for their workers I, but I, you know i talked to somebody last week who told me that they rent 
they have a, a, a fourplex or, you know, a four unit apartment and they've, they've rented out one of the units has an agreement with a local farmer in the area. And that farmer, you know, lets two or three of his workers live in this, in this apartment that he rents out, that he pays for. And the, the man who owns this building, who told me about it said, I would not live there. Like, it's fine, but I would not live there. So there's this, yes, like people want to work and everybody's happy to do the work, but it is not work that most Americans can imagine for themselves or for their children. And that's the part that really, that really drives me. I mean, I kind of went on a, on a, on a tangent. It's, it's like, it's absurd and it's, it's awful at the same time. I really appreciate your frankness. And I've encountered that narrative as well of like, okay, yeah, there are these opportunities for uh, cross-cultural relationships to arise. There are opportunities, obviously, for um, people coming from Central America and Mexico and and elsewhere as well. Uh, I've met South Americans on dairies, West Africans as well, um, as you know. But um, nonetheless, this is a form of exploitation, right? Anytime you're dealing with the black market, and that's essentially what people not having papers to legally work is, uh, they're, they're very vulnerable to exploitation, exploitation. And there's a kind of a lack of uh, honesty sometimes, like you said, in, in our representation of, of what's actually happening. Um, and it's also very hard as a reporter to do the kind of work that you're doing in that kind of circumstance uh, for many of the reasons you've talked about already, but yet ProPublica is really doing a great job of communicating how you've gone about reporting this series and not just trying to reach the mainstream here, but trying to reach workers themselves with the stories um, that you're telling. Yet you and Mariam, your colleague, aren't from Wisconsin, so it's, I imagine, been a little bit of a challenge trying to find and develop relationships with immigrant dairy workers. Tell us about how you've gone about that and been able to find and, and contact so many people over this um, year or a little bit more, right, that you've been working on this? Yeah, it's I'm incredibly proud of what we've been able to do so far. It's It's been really, really difficult because people live in all over the state. We don't live in the state. I live in Chicago and I have two little kids. So it's hard to, I can't just like drive out there and be in Wisconsin for a week. Like my husband would divorce me. So I, I, I do day trips sometimes or, or, or my colleague who, who lives in DC, she'll come and do a few days at a time too. But we have, dri- we, we use um, little grocery stores, like the Mexican grocery stores as like a central like entry point because people go there to buy their groceries, to send home their remittances and cash their checks. So we have visited I think at this point, like 70 to 80 grocery stores all over the state. We have made um, flyers in Spanish that have QR codes back to our work that explain the work that we're doing and what we're looking for. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time for this, this these past stories in courts and municipal courts and circuit courts. And I just talked to folks who, who are waiting. Um, and I, I work mostly in WhatsApp, which is the, the app that a lot of immigrant workers use. I speak Spanish, Maddie speak Spanish, that helps. And and if and for us, it like these are all ways that we do the reporting and we like get information from people. But like you said, we also want to get information back to 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 folks. We want to get our stories back to the people who the stories are about. Like it's not we're not just writing for like the the good white liberal audience that ProPublica is known for. We also want want the stories to resonate and have value for the folks we're writing about. But people um, have very low literacy rates, even in Spanish. And and like we're we're aware of that personally. And, and as we've been talking to folks, we ask them, how do you get your news? And a lot of people can't read. Um, and so one thing that that I'm I'm really glad that we were able to convince our editors that was worth investing in is for all of these stories that we're producing. We're writing them not only in Spanish and having them not only in English and translating them into Spanish, but we've also hired professional audio makers to produce narrated versions like read out loud versions of our stories in Spanish and that's one way that people in the communities can consume what we're writing because they they can at least listen to them I've joined TikTok like I I am almost 40 I'm not like a very technically savvy person but I've I've made a TikTok account and I've made videos of of, of myself doing the reporting we made videos of some of our stories that, that went really viral among dairy workers and we're we're sort of like throwing spaghetti on the walls. We printed out our last story into like little booklets, like beautiful booklets that we've been giving out to both the people involved in the story and then the community. And you can see 
it's it's something precious to have something that's beautiful about them that is in their hands. It's very different than looking at something on a website. So we're trying everything. Yeah, that's amazing and amazing that you have that support to do that that kind of work. Um, and I'm sure really valuable, as you're saying, for workers to feel like somebody's paying attention and I can hold this thing in my hand that shows that, you know, somebody's paying attention and, and cares about my story and what's happening. We have a caller on the line here um, with a few minutes left to go. Ron, uh, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks. Disclosure, I grew up on farms and worked with dairy from age 8 through 18. We must expose the ugly truth, uh, historical. Columbus, Pizarro, Cortez, DeSoto, all the folks at Jamestown and Plymouth Colony, none of them had valid visas from any existing American government on these two continents and all the associated islands. All of those invaders were illegal immigrants from Europe. That is my origins. You know, half my, or, you know, dad's people were Polish and moms were wasp mostly. But we are the illegal immigrants. The folks from Central America and Mexico, a large fraction of them have Native American ancestry. They are real Americans, and we are the recent Americans trying, continuing, continuing to steal their land and water. Thanks for the like historical perspective, Ron. I think that, that it's valuable. Did you have a question? Well, will the politicians ever face the truth, the historical truth, that we are the illegal invaders, the white Western Europeans are the illegal invaders and the folks we call illegals from the Rio Grande probably have native genetics and they are the real Americans and we're the fake Americans. Thank you for calling in, Ron. Um, I think I'll, I'll spin that question a little bit farther out just for the sake of um, the context we're talking about here and ask you, Melissa, are there lessons from this kind of storytelling that you and your colleague Mariam are doing that you think can help us see what's happening with U.S. immigration differently or that might influence policy? I mean, what do you see as coming out of this? I guess maybe this is a way to talk about impacts of your work as well. I don't know. I mean, actually hearing that caller was was helpful you know one of the farmers i talked to told me that his mom is was an immigrant from i think sweden and when she came she she didn't have a passport right away um she got a license even though she didn't speak english and and for him it was like you know my, just thought it wasn't so far removed it was just you know 30 40 years earlier like the, the same situation that happened to his mother but his mother is white and European and was afforded a different kind of privilege than the brown people who work on dairy farms today are. So I, you know, the, it's, it's, it's really basic. And I, I, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the times it's, it's like basic human interactions that have helped people see things differently. And that's what I found in Abbotsford from the police chief who also wants a stronger border policy. Um, to the mayor, to the judges, to the lawmakers, like everybody I talked to, like, was really personally, like, aware and intimate because they've had personal experiences with folks that that, that helped change their perspective. And I, I don't know, I, I think that's, that's part of what we try to do in journalism. Like, it's not just exposing the harm and the, the awful statistics, but, but showing the humanity behind what's happening. Sometimes it's effective. Sometimes it's not. You should see the hate mail that we get. <laughs> um, but I think I think it takes time and it takes a lot of individual work with each person to convince to convince hearts and minds. And speaking of that ongoing work, what are you currently investigating in Wisconsin right now? What articles might we expect in the future? So we hope to we hope our next article will look more closely at OSHA and its um, its exemptions and how and why it doesn't inspect deaths and injuries on small farms, farms with fewer than 11 workers. If any of your listeners want to chat with us, 
please reach out. And then, and then at the end of the year, the last story we hope to end this calendar year with is looking very at the very basic question of what happens to workers when they get injured. Like, do they get access to medical care? What happens to their housing? What happens to, you know, their long-term like ability to work if they've had a chronic um, injury or amputation on the farm? So we have a lot of work to do, and it's already August, mid-August. <laughs> And do you have any final thoughts about, you know, the impacts of your reporting so far specifically? I know you did that story about the death of the, the boy in Dane County or anything else that you've heard in terms of feedback that uh, is uh, valuable to share with our listeners about the importance of this work. Yeah, I mean, with the first story, we we have we did hear back from a lot of officials in Dane County, and and there's there's a movement toward increasing language access or ensuring language access between law enforcement and the folks that they they interact with when when people don't speak English. With this story, um, you know, I was at a, at a at some sort of press conference that some immigrant rights uh, activists were at a few months, maybe a month and a half ago. And already during that meeting, I heard I heard the organizers reciting back the statistics that I had shared with them about what's happening with the driver's licenses, that half of the tickets are going to, to people who are Hispanic. And so I, I feel like our work is already going to become part of the discourse. And hopefully, um, hopefully that helps because what's happening right now in Wisconsin, it isn't it isn't fair and it's really harmful to people who are providing the milk that we drink and that our kids drink. So I think um I think it's starting to reach folks and hopefully hopefully we'll convince some of them. Thank you, Melissa. You can find this work on the ProPublica website. We'll link to it on our podcast here. I've been talking today with ProPublica reporter Melissa Sanchez about her recent article co-written with Mariam Jamil, Wisconsin's dairy industry relies on undocumented immigrants, but the state won't let them legally drive. It's been a real pleasure talking with you, Melissa. I look forward to seeing more of your work in the America's Dairyland series. Thanks for coming on. And thank you for having me. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes, and I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, and news director, Shali Pittman, for your help. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat on today's show. David Ahrens is in conversation with Josh Shepard on the beginnings of American public broadcasting. Station in the fight, straight from the base, deep down, no precision.